Loving Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that your spirit who inspired these words to be written would, would work in our hearts as we consider them this evening. And we ask that he would uh, enable us to respond to Jesus rightly uh, and treat him correctly as the Lord of our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Our nation awoke this morning to a new dawn. Malaysia is a different country today than it was yesterday. The whole political landscape has changed. Some people are excited and hopeful. Some people are worried. Others are a bit of both. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, in uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 21, he also changed the political landscape of the city. He had been hailed as God's promised king as he came in, a political figure. He was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. And many people said that. He was the one who was going to bring in the kingdom of God. Now the most important place in Jerusalem was, was the temple. And Jesus had gone there. Not as a tourist, not even as a pilgrim, but as someone else, something else entirely. Remember what Jesus was doing in the temple? We saw that a couple of weeks ago in verse 12 of chapter 21. He entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought there. Kicked out the merchants. In verse 14, he was there healing the blind and the lame. In verse 15, while he was there, we had, he was the recipient of the praises of children who were crying, Hosanna, which means save us, son of David. That is the promised king. And here in verse 23, he was teaching. Standing about with people listening to him, teaching about the kingdom. It's as if he was setting up shop in the temple. It was as if he was treating the temple as, as his own. As if he was acting as lord of the temple. Now as he was doing this, the temple authorities come up to him. It is their temple after all. Oh, well, it's God's temple at least, but, but they're in charge of it. They were the custodians of the temple. And Jesus, this teacher and healer from Galilee, seems to, to be doing all kinds of stuff in there without their permission. He just set up shop there. And so they confront him, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? What right have you got? Who gave you the authority to do this? It's an interesting question, isn't it? See, we are the temple authorities. We didn't give you permission. So whose authority are you doing this on? That's not a clever illustration, I'm just cold. Now, Jesus doesn't answer their question. At least he doesn't answer it directly. Instead, he throws another question back at them. He says in verse 24, I also will ask you one question, 
And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what the authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now that John that uh, Jesus is referring to here is John the Baptist. He's described for us at the beginning of, of Matthew's Gospel as wearing a garment of ham- camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, his food was locusts and wild honey, he lived in the desert. <coughs> and he was like <coughs> a prophet. He came to Israel. He called Israel to repent because the kingdom of God was about to come. God was going to come and save his people. And you know, many, many people repented and believed what he was saying and were baptized by him as a sign of repentance. He was like the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he's in the New Testament. And he said in Matthew chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John is preparing for someone who is coming after him. Someone who will bring salvation, who will give new birth to God's people by his Spirit. But who would also bring judgment, fire. This is winning fork, his winnowing fork in his hand, he will clear the threshing floor, he will gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, Jesus said to the chief priests and scribes, If you tell me what kind, if you want me to tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things, you tell me. John's baptism, was that from heaven or from man? Do you accept John as a genuine prophet of God or not? Or do they? Look at verse 25, second half. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then you do not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. This is just politics, isn't it? They're, just, they're, not, wanting to, they're not trying to work out whether John was from heaven or from man. They're just trying to work out the best political answer to give at that point. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now Jesus won't tell them, because they won't answer Jesus. Let's think about that a bit. Is it just that Jesus says, Ah, okay, you asked me a hard question, so I will ask you an unrelated hard question. If you don't answer me, then I won't answer you. Alright, so is it any different from saying, Okay, I'll answer your question if you tell me how many moons Jupiter has. Or tell me the speed of light to seven decimal places. Like Chris, Chris could probably tell you that. Right. Is it that? It's not, is it? You see, the answer to the question that Jesus asked the chief priests and the scribes, if they had answered it correctly, rather than politically, that would have given, given them the answer to the question that they asked Jesus. By refusing to consider the answer to Jesus' question, by just being political rather than genuinely considering the situation, 
they showed that they didn't really want to know the answer that Jesus, that they asked, of the question they asked Jesus. It was all a game. And so they never got the answer they were looking for. Because they were insincere in asking. There will be some people here tonight who are not yet followers of Jesus. We'd love you to come to church with us. You're very welcome here. And we'd love you to ask questions. But please do be sincere in your questioning. If you have genuine questions, you want to know certain things in order to make an informed decision about the Christian faith, that's terrific. Ask away, as many as you like. But if you're like the religious leaders whose questions were just there to attack, didn't really want to know the answers, well, you're never going to get the answers to the questions you asked. Ask questions by all means. Use them to get information. But don't use them to play games. Or hide from the God that you know is there. The Jewish leaders asked Jesus what kind of authority he had to do what he was doing in the temple. And he asked that question in return. Now, let's think about how the question relates to the question they asked Jesus. What does John the Baptist got to do with the authority of Jesus in the temple? Well, the link we find back in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament, and he actually prophesied about the coming of John and of Jesus. And he said this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now look at that carefully. Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, as John the Baptist, to prepare the way before me. Okay? John the Baptist keeps on saying that he is the one who is preparing the way. And who is this preparing the way for? Prepare the way before me, says who? Says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Almighty God. He says, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God would come to his temple. The one that Israel had been waiting for would appear. Now if John was a true prophet, if he was the messenger he claimed to be, if he prepared the way for Jesus as he claimed he would, if he really was from God, then who is Jesus according to Malachi? He is the Lord God whom Israel seeks who comes to his temple. Whose temple? Chief priest's temple? Scribe's temple? Pharisee's temple? God's temple. God will come to his very own temple. Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? But if they listened to John and thought about their Old Testament, 
They'd know the answer. If John was a genuine prophet of God, then Jesus had to be God, come to his own temple. And if he was God, come to his temple, then he had every right to do whatever he liked in it. They are the ones who ought to have submitted to him. They are the ones who have ought to have said, Lord, welcome to your temple. Please take it over. We are your servants. But what they did was oppose him when he came. They would not listen to John the Baptist. They would not listen to Malachi. But their concerns were to protect their own vested interests. And so Jesus told two stories about them. The first one, which we see in verses 28 to 32, compares them with their... You see, they, they are in these respectable religious groups, and he compares them with people they consider as immoral sinners. He will be on the edge, too unholy to participate with tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, tax collectors were hated by the Jews of the day because they were corrupt. It was bad enough that they collected taxes on behalf of the Roman occupiers, but they also grossly overcharged and kept the extra money for themselves. And so they were the wealthy scum of society. The reason the prostitutes were considered immoral, that's obvious. But Jesus compared both of these favorably with the temple authorities in this parable. Let's look at the parable in verses 28 to 32. So, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. But he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and did the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. You see, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were like the first son. They, they were living in open sin. They were said, rebelling against God, doing all kinds of things that they weren't meant to do. But when John the Baptist came, God sent John, they repented. They knew they were sinful, and they took the chance to be forgiven and start again. And so when Jesus came, they listened to him. But the religious leaders were like the second son. They were all talk. They said, yes God, we want to obey you. We want to follow you, we want to do your work. When God sent John the Baptist, they didn't listen to him. And so when Jesus came, the one that John the Baptist was preparing the way for, they didn't accept him. And even giving him the place, didn't give, didn't give him the place that he was due. And so the so-called bad people 
were actually good. And the so-called good people were actually bad. It's paradoxically, isn't it? Paradoxical, isn't it? Sometimes being a good person can be bad for you. The most lethal illnesses sometimes are the ones with the fewest symptoms. Stomach cancer, for example, is far more dangerous than esophageal cancer. The cancer of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the tube that goes from the throat to the back of your mouth down to the, to the stomach. Why? Because, well, with esophageal cancer, food gets stuck as you go down, uh, and so you know something's wrong early on. Whereas with stomach cancer, you can, uh, cancer can grow there for a long time, and you don't even realize anything's wrong until it's too late to, be, to do anything about it. Sometimes the most lethal illnesses are the ones with the fewest symptoms. And sometimes being good, inverted commas, is a dangerous thing. Sometimes being religious is a dangerous thing. It was like that with these guys, yeah. Because you think you haven't done anything really bad, so you're okay. You're not a drug addict or a gang member or worse, you're not a lawyer. All right? And you're, sorry. And you're good, and decent, and respectable, or religious, and you don't even realize that you're sinful. And the chief priests and scribes, they, they were just as much in rebellion against God as the as the tax collectors and prostitutes. They they just expressed it in different ways. That is, in power-hungry, self-serving religious leadership, which seems so respectable. But all of us really have sinned against God. All of us deserve His punishment. All of, all of us have hearts that are sinful and sinful on the inside. And, and all of us need Jesus. All of us need to hand over our lives to Him as Lord and receive the forgiveness that He bought for us. The ones who show the symptoms of rebellion very clearly, people like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, it's obvious. But for people like the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, it's, it's all nicely hidden under a veneer of morality and religion. And, and we can use any religion, even institutional Christianity, to conceal our selfishness. In fact, so good are religious people at hiding their sinfulness, that we, we can sometimes even hide it from ourselves, which is even more dangerous. Because if we think we're good enough for God, then we don't need rescuing, do we? We mustn't be like the first son in the story. Like the religious leaders who said, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. They didn't do what he said. Say, yes, I'll do it. But don't receive Jesus. And don't follow him. Don't hand over to him. Reject the son from being the Lord of the temple, of the nation, of their lives. And would therefore face his wrath. Jesus picks up the consequences of this kind of behavior in the second story. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, in the second story, in verses uh, 33 to 44, Jesus takes the elements from an Old Testament parable and he changes it to give it a new meaning 
Uh, we're not going to read the original parable in the Old Testament because we, we uh, read it out earlier just now. You will recall it was from Isaiah chapter 5. And it was about a man who planted a vineyard. A vineyard is a place to, to grow grapes, to make wine. He dug it out, he cleared it of stones, he put good vines in it, he built a watchtower and a wine vat, and he waited for the grapes to ripen. And he did, he did everything necessary for the vineyard to bear fruit, but it didn't. The only kind of grapes he got was wild grapes. And so he was going to destroy his vineyard. In Isaiah 5, the vineyard was Israel. Israel was the vineyard that God planted. And it says that he looked for justice, but there was only bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, and there was only an outcry. So he was going to destroy the nation. And he did. The nation was defeated by the Babylonians. The people were taken into exile. But that was the story of Isaiah 5. Now, when Jesus tells a story, it is similar to the old one, but it's different. It has similar elements, but a different point. There's still the master, there's still the vineyard, but the parable is not against the vineyard itself, as it was in Isaiah. It focuses on another group of people, people who are not in the Isaiah parable. Look who they are. Read the parable together in verses 3 to 39. 33 to 39. There was the master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to the tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent more servants, other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You see the change in focus here? problem in this vineyard story is the tenants. The ones whom the master had left to look after the vineyard. Who were meant to pay a portion of the crops to the owner of the vineyard. The problem is they wouldn't pay their due to the master of the vineyard, to the owner. Instead when he sent messengers to collect his, 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 his due they killed them. One after another. And finally he sent his son and they killed him as well. And they thought that by doing that, well, they'd get the inheritance, the vineyard would be theirs. It's a foolish thought, isn't it? Would the master allow that? Well, Jesus answers, ask the question, verse 14. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. They forget about suing them or sending them a lawyer's letter. Yeah. They had killed his messengers, slain his son. He would take his revenge, put them to a miserable death, and then rent out his vineyard to tenants who would pay. Now many parables in the Bible were hard to understand. Many parables are hiding things. But this one, this one would have been clear as a bell 
to the people who were there at the time. They would have been stunned. Those who were listening to him, they knew what he was talking about. It's obviously, he was obviously talking about the Jewish leadership. Those who ran the temple. Those who led the community. They were in the vineyard, Israel. Not as owners, but, but as tenants. They were meant to give God his due, but they would not listen to the prophets. And when Jesus, the Son of God, came, well, they were planning to kill him. And within a week, they would. But they were wrong to do that. As wrong as the tenants in this vineyard. Because the one they were about to kill was the very one in whom all God's plans and purposes were going to be fulfilled. Jesus said to them in verse 42, Have you not read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now this is a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is either about Israel personified or God's promised king. And the man in Psalm 118 is a man who trusts God rather than human beings. And even though it looks like his enemies are going to defeat him, God suddenly rescues him. And there's great rejoicing. And the psalmist says in the midst of his rejoicing, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes. See, the picture is that of a building site. And there are all the stones there, ready to be built into a house. And the, and the builders pick up one, ready to throw away. Because they look at it and they go, no, that's not good enough to be part of the house. We throw it away. Useless. And yet somehow or other, that stone, the stone the builders threw away, becomes the cornerstone. The most important stone in the house. He's the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone is the, the stone's got to go down first. Put it down first, because it's got to be perfect. Put it down first because everything aligns by that stone. So you put the stone down. The cornerstone goes down first. And then the house, you build all the other stones in that direction, according to the cornerstone, following the alignment. All the stones in that direction following the alignment. And then up that way. So the whole house is built on the alignment of the cornerstone. You've got to get that one right. That's the most important one. The stone the builders rejected, they said, there's no good, throw it away, has become the cornerstone. The most important stone in the house. That's, that's very surprising. It's, it's like someone who is sacked for being incompetent in the sales department being appointed the CEO of the company. Right? It's bizarre. It's unthinkable. How could a stone that the, the builders regarded unworthy now become the keystone in the building? It's the Lord who has done this. And it's marvelous in our eyes, the psalmist says. Now we know that that psalm was actually pointing forward to Jesus. He was both the true Israel and Israel's promised king. He's the one who would be despised and rejected by Israel. He would be crucified and executed and said to be useless. And yet God would raise him to life and exalt him as king of kings and lord of all and make him the center of all his plans and purposes for the world. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and it is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now the chief priests and the scribes may not have understood all that but they could have understood that the chosen one of God would be rejected. So Jesus says to them, haven't you read the psalm? 
I'm that cornerstone. And guess what? You guys are the builders. And you are just about to reject the stone. Therefore, verse 43, I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. See, the people who thought that they would be the, the natural recipients of the kingdom of God would never enter it. You would have thought they would be the natural recipients, wouldn't you? I mean, the kingdom of God was going to come through Israel and these are the guys, the leaders, the religious leaders of the nation. But, but no, it will be taken away from them. What they thought was rightfully theirs, they would lose it. And it will be given to a people who would produce fruit. People who would give the master of the vineyard and his son their dues. People who would honor Jesus and give their lives to, to serve him rather than reject him and seek his life. People who would produce the fruit that the master desired. And friends, that's what happened in them. The Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, they had no part in the kingdom when it came. When Jesus brought in the kingdom through his death and resurrection, the leaders that he set over it were not the chief priests and scribes, but a surprising group of people that we now call the apostles. People like Peter, the fisherman. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. People who let Jesus down but were forgiven and restored and turned the world upside down with the gospel of his kingdom. Verse 44, Jesus goes back to talking about stones. And he goes back again to Isaiah to find another stone illustration there. He says in verse 44, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and that when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's that about? The quotation there is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Now it's very interesting because Isaiah 8 is talking about God himself. And there God is warning the prophet Isaiah not to be like the people of his country. See the people of his country, what they were worried about was an invasion by Assyria. Assyria was a big superpower at the time that was threatening Israel. And everyone was worried about them. But this is what God said to Isaiah. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. See, on the one hand, God will become a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a refuge, a shelter, a place to be safe. But on the other hand, he would be a trap, a snare, something that will bring you down. A stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. A picture here is a stone that, that makes people stumble, like a, a rock that's in someone's path and, and they don't see it, they don't take any notice of it. And, they, and they're walking along and bah, trip over it and fall down. Crashing down, broken. And so the stone becomes a trap and a snare. 
It's not the stone's fault. It's the fault of people not watching where they're going. Now Jesus takes this and applies it to himself. Yes, he is the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected. But if people reject him, then he's a different kind of stone. He's the kind of stone that people trip over. They will cause them to come crashing down. He will not be their sanctuary. He will not be their safe shelter. He will be their downfall. And that's exactly what he would be to these religious leaders. See, he warned them about the action they were about to take. They were about to kill him. They were about to take the cornerstone and throw it away. And they would not enter his kingdom. Instead, they will be trip and fall and be destroyed by the stone. Is they'll be judged and punished because of Jesus. Now, for all their blindness, the leaders knew who Jesus was talking about. Verse 45. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And their eyes, they understood this one. And so did they repent. Did they say, ah, oh, I get it now. You're right, you're the cornerstone. We mustn't reject you. Sorry, we nearly did. No. You see, their attitudes just fulfill what Jesus said about them. They wanted to kill him. Though at the time they had political constraints. Verse 46, though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And so they left him alone for now. But friends, what about us? How does this passage talk about our response to Jesus? Well, there may be some of us here who are actually deciding what to do with him. See, like the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees, we're, we're looking at the Jesus stone, deciding whether we're going to throw it away or not. Friends, don't, don't throw away the stone like they did. Don't reject the stone. He could be the stone that saves you. The place where you get shelter from the coming judgment. Or he could be the stone of stumbling. Your downfall. It all depends on how you respond to him. So do what the Jewish religious leaders failed to do. Hand over to him. It's the best thing for you, and more importantly, he deserves it. Most people here are already believers. We've already placed our lives in Jesus' hands. So how does this passage apply to us? What does the fact that Jesus is Lord of the temple mean to our lives? Well, we know that the temple of Jesus' day is now defunct, don't we? Jesus died and rose again and when he died he, he put an end to all the old sacrificial system that was based in the temple because he himself was the once and for all sacrificed to take away sins. He was the great high priest who offered that sacrifice and so the temple is not needed anymore. In fact, Jesus himself is the temple, the place where we meet God. And now, God's spirit dwells in all those who belong to Jesus. We are his temples. 
And God is also with us by His Spirit whenever we meet together. So that together we are the temple of God. So let me remind you. Jesus is Lord of these temples just as much as He was Lord of the temple in Jerusalem. He is Lord of your body. Your body is a temple. And He is Lord of the church. The gathering of God's people is the temple. Wherever we gather, whenever we gather. And brothers and sisters, you and I are custodians of these temples. Just like the chief priests and scribes were the custodians of the temple in Jerusalem. But they are God's temples. Jesus is their rightful Lord. The question is, are we treating Jesus properly by the way we govern these temples? Do we let him take authority here? Firstly, do we honor him in the way we use our bodies? The temples that we are custodians of. So what do we need to do with them? What, what, what those Jewish leaders did not do for the temple in Jerusalem, hand them to Jesus, use them for him. If our bodies are God's temples, they are sacred things, not to be used for sinful purposes. We do not take what is holy for God and use it for sexual immorality. We need to honor God with our temple bodies. And we need to give Jesus lordship of our bodies in every area of life, not just the sexual. Our whole bodies belong to him. And so we are to serve him. We are to live our lives for him. We are to seek to glorify him in all that we do. To use our bodies for his glory. To use our bodies for Jesus, who is the Lord of the temple. Or else... We are like the Jewish religious leaders who simply used their custodianship of the temple for their own ends rather than to honor Jesus. Secondly, do we honor him as a church? I'm not just thinking in terms of singing songs and reciting creeds about him, but allowing him to rule us by his word so that Jesus really is the head here. Lord Jesus went into his temple but found no fruit. Do we let Jesus have his way in spectrum? Does he rule us by his word? Do we submit to him? Or are we like the first last son, son or the second son actually, who said, Yes, we love you, we want to obey you, but we end up not doing it. Talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God would make us people who listen to Jesus and obey Him. Who delight in His forgiveness, who glory in His grace, and who seek to exalt His Lordship in our lives and in our church. And so bear much fruit to His praise and glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, our Lord Jesus. 
thank you for the many things that he did and that he said. Thank you for the way you revealed yourself to us through him. Our Father, we've talked tonight about how he went into the temple. His authority wasn't recognized there in his own temple. And we pray that that won't be true of us. We pray that we, each one of us individually, and as your people together, would not only call him Lord, but live with him as Lord. That we would use these temples that you have given us to honor him and to serve him, to exalt him. May he rule in us. May he truly be Lord of his temple. We ask this Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.